Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Business of Medicine series on ENT in a Nutshell. I'm Ashley Nasiri, and today we are joined by Professor Scott Snook to discuss leadership development. This is the second episode of our two-part series on leadership development. Professor Snook, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for including me, Ashley. Professor Snook is a senior lecturer of business administration at the Harvard Business School. His illustrious career began in the military, where he graduated from West Point and served in the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers for over 22 years. Among many other accolades, he has earned a Bronze Star and Purple Heart. In more recent years, his work has focused on teaching leadership development for business students. His research explores leading change and organizational failures. He has explored specific developmental experiences that seem to facilitate the development of leaders. It's an honor to have Professor Snook here with us today to provide us with a deeper understanding of how experiences can be deliberately evaluated and used to develop leadership skills. Professor Snook, in our last episode on leadership development, we discussed how variable and individualized the definition of leadership is. How would you go about defining what leadership means to you? We have a saying in the field, there's as many definitions of leadership as there are people who've studied it. Um, so at the highest level, I would I would define leadership as the process of mobilizing others towards some shared goal or outcome. When we think of leadership development and kind of terminology that we use, what's the difference between leadership development or a leader per se? So I make a distinction between those two. If you think about in the English language, all the words that end in ship, uh, sportsmanship, penmanship, salesmanship, scholarship, seamanship. So think about it. All those, that's the seamanship, the art and science of learning how to sail. And we have a sort of a thumbnail rule of thumb in the, in the, in the field that talks about 70-20-10. I don't know if you've heard of this, Ashley, but most people believe that it's about right. 70% of learning how to lead happens while you're in an actual leadership position, right? And then 20%, while you're leading, you're getting great feedback, um, 360 evaluations and coaching. And then maybe 10% can happen in a classroom. So when I first started teaching in a formalized setting, I was like, man, I buy into the 70-20-10 rule. So how do I rationalize that or make sense of, yeah, mostly you learn how to lead while you're leading. And yet here I am spending much of the second half of my life in classrooms, <laughs> trying to help others develop as leaders. And so here's that distinction between leadership development and leader development. So think about seamanship again. You can learn how to sail. You can learn some things about how to sail from a book. But until you get out in the open water and your hands on the tiller and you feel the wind coming from the starboard and you start to tack and that boom comes around, you don't really get it until you're actually doing it, right? And so I believe that leadership development is pretty much in line with the 70-20-10 rule. And so I've shifted my focus over the years from helping others learn how to influence and mobilize towards some shared goal to where I think the real leverage is, which is leader development. And that distinguishes between leadership and leader development. Leader development is largely synonymous with human development and uh, who you are. And I believe it's the instrument you know, where the real leverage is. And so um, others can teach about power and influence and how to mobilize. And, and you do that when you're in a social setting, when you're actually leading an organization and you have real people and you're mobilizing them. That's how you learn how to lead. I want you to learn about who you are first. 
You started to touch upon this a little bit, but how does someone's identity influence the way we view leadership development? Yeah. And so that's, I don't want, I don't want to be led by someone who doesn't know who they are and who they're not. And so about 10 years ago, started teaching this course called Authentic Leader Development that a colleague of mine, Bill George, who was a leader most of his life, he was a CEO at Medtronics, um, developed this course around authentic leader development. Well, authentic means, you know, who you are, like being transparent, being open, um, being vulnerable. And so how do you do that? How do you help people? And we have really two simple goals. It's an identity-based approach to leader development. And the goals are really simple. We want to increase your clarity and comfort, increase self-awareness and self-acceptance. And all we want to do is move the dials on those two dimensions, right? Greater sense of self-awareness and clarity, who you are and who you aren't, your strengths, your weaknesses, your core values, and also, and equally, and maybe more difficult, an increased sense of comfort with yourself, self-acceptance. Have you ever been around someone who's anxious or not really sure who they are or um, versus someone who's just okay with who they are. They're, they're okay with, you know, say, I know this. I think I know this. I'm not sure what about this. These are my weaknesses. These are my strengths. And so that sort of self-comfort goes with self-awareness. And so we've designed a series of experiences. Um, and this is an identity approach, you know, who you are, right? Greater clarity and self-comfort and a, a, a series of experiences to try to help move the dial in both of those. And we think that's, that's the start of leader development. Can you go into some of the leadership development theory that underlines your work? Yeah. So I have three major frameworks when I think about leader development, right? And I'll share those with you. One is a process framework. Uh, the second is addresses the question, what's changing? Think about development. What's changing when you're developing? And the third is What's realistic in terms of what we can develop and change? So let's go to the first one, the process framework. It's fairly simple. I think this is a, a, a simple developmental or learning framework. There's developmental readiness. So go, moving left to right, how ready are you? How are you ready? Are you open? Are you, and you think about it, when I'm in transition from one job to another, or when I've just failed, um, am I in a learning mode? How developmental ready am I? Right. And we find out that when people are really successful, that's the most difficult time to get them to be open to experimenting, to learning. So developmental readiness is the first piece. And I think we underappreciate that piece. Um, the second piece is the experience itself. And I believe in life's curriculum. So I think you can learn about yourself, about others, about leading, about influencing um, every minute of every day. Right. I mean, life's you don't even have to create these programs and courses that I've spent my life teaching and, and developing every minute of every day when you're out there. So there's the readiness, there's the experience, and then the last piece is reflection. So experience without reflection is gone, right? I mean, most of our lives, our waking lives from birth to death are pretty boring, right? We spend most of it sleeping or washing our face or brushing our teeth or monotonously going through routines or commuting, right? So those experiences, some are more salient than others, right? And we talk about crucible experiences that are heavily laden with meaning. Um, we have these offsites and retreats and developmental courses where we try to focus explicitly on developmental experiences. Um, so think about that as a process model. Readiness, experience, and reflection. And unless you write down the reflection, you really don't get it. And so um, 
nothing forces clarity like writing. So we highly encourage uh, journaling, weekly reflections, written reflections. If you think about President Obama, right, uh, just came out with his second biography, autobiography. There's a guy at first third of his life, he wrote an autobiography. If we would all do that, so around age 30, somewhere around there, if we all wrote the, you know, try to go back and look at the first 30 years of our lives, figure out who we are and actually had to write it, <laughs> which is the real clarity comes to that. That helps prepare you for the next third of his life. And you think about it, then he had an amazing middle third of his life and he's getting ready for the final chapter and he wrote another autobiography. So I'm just using an iconic leader uh, as an example at a highest level. But you can do this weekly. You can do this quarterly or annually or journaling. So there it is, right? Process model. Developmental readiness. How open and ready are you? What type of experiences are, are rich for developmental purposes? And then do you reflect? So that's the first one. The second one, uh, which I spent most of my career thinking about, is something in that I learned in the army. It's called be, no, do. So I don't know if you ever thought about this, Ashley, but when you're in a classroom or a program, um, it's about plan change. You're hopefully you're somehow different at the end. If it's a leadership development program or leader development program, you know somehow you're supposed to be different. Well, different how? <laughs> What's changing? Think about all those words in the English language. Um, learning, growing, maturation, um, training, development, right? So I've got this simple model that was given to me by my first mentor in the Army, Major Mac Harris. He came up with this be no do model, and it became the bedwork, the foundation for the Army's, U.S. Army's uh, leadership doctrine. And it's survived for 40, 50 years now. So think about this. Be, no, do. Picture a circle, a Venn diagram, a circle, big word, be at the top. Okay, that's who you are. And then inside this big circle are two smaller circles that overlap, you know, like Olympic rings. And one of those circles is no, the other one is do. So who you are, the be component, is a holistic. People respond to each other holistically. When I meet you, Ashley, I, I got incredibly sophisticated scratch and sniff meters. And when I inter interact with you, I get to know you whole, I experience you holistically, who you are. But inside of who you are, the know and the do is your knowledge and skills that you've developed over your years. Now, Ashley, I don't know you that well, but I would assume that you're much more than you accumulated some of your technical knowledge and skills over the years. As impressive as they are, picture those two little overlapping circles. But it's how those knowledge and skills come together in the one singular, unique person um, on this planet out of 7.7 .7 billion people that we recognize as you, Ashley, right? And that's the B component. That's the identity component. That's your personality. That's your core values. So B, no, do. B is who you are, your identity, and then knowledge and skills. And I save the word, if you think about skills, that's training. We know how to train people. You can learn to be a better communicator. You can learn to give feedback. Uh, knowledge is being informed, right? I mean, I could hopefully I could draw this diagram and you could learn it and spit it back to me. You're better informed about this framework. So knowledge and skills, we kind of get that and uh, how to do that. And then I, I reserve the word development or transform um, for the holistic piece, the B component, who you are. And so that's the second piece. First is a process model, right? Readiness experience, reflection. The second one is be, no, do, which pieces are changing. And then the third one, I don't spend a lot of time on this, but I think we, we rarely think about this when we attend a leader development experience or we try to change something like 
New Year's resolutions is what's realistic? Uh, you know, in a short period of time, how much can we change? Right. And one has to look at New Year's res- only has to look at New Year's resolutions or commitments in the past about dieting or strict, uh, sticking to a, an exercise regime or stopping some simple habit like biting your nails when, you know, and it's hard to change. I think we overestimate how easy it is to change uh, ourselves. Right. And so uh, having a discussion about what's realistic in terms of of what you're changing, how you want to be different, how you want to develop and grow. I think we can increase our knowledge and skills easier than we can change the B component, who we are. And yet that's the real foundation. Why do you follow people? Yeah, their expertise on one hand, that's the price of admission, but who they are is the real essence of leaders. And that's why I've shifted my um, professional uh, focus for the last 20 years now to focusing on leader development and identity approach uh, to leaders as opposed to leadership, the knowledge and skills, which is important. But um, I think the real leverage is with the B component of B, no do. And when we take in this uh, framework that you've just described into account, um, how does the definition of a crucible experience help us understand how pivotal life events shape our relationships and both leadership and life perspectives? So this notion crucibles, right? These are the searing moments that seem to be heavily laden with meaning. And typically, these are moments of pain or loss or grief, getting fired, great illness, losing a loved one. Um, these are these moments in time that we tend to return to over and over again uh, to mine them for lessons, right? And so these crucible, and, and it can be a positive experience as well. You know, you, 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 you win an election or you get promoted. You know, what can you learn about yourself um, from that experience as well? But in general, life and growth is not linear. It's not like from the lower left-hand corner of an XY axis um, on a 45-degree angle to the upper right-hand corner. We know that, right? Life goes up and down like a sine wave. You know, we have great days and then we have bad days. We have good years and then less good years. And crucibles, we ask ourselves this, this question, what happens when you hit bottom? What happens when you face adversity? What happens when you fail? Um, and it's what happens at those bottoms, these troughs in our lives. And the biggest questions, and I spend all sorts of time uh, with executives in coaching and with my students on this, to come up with a few significant crucibles in their lives and ask these questions. What happens when you hit bottom? Do you keep going down? Right? Do you ruminate? Do you spin? Um, or do you spin back up. You hit bottom and come out stronger. That's the first piece. What's your general pattern of responding to adversity? And this is the notion of resilience and hardiness and grit. And let me just pause for a second. If I could give my children one single human attribute over and above any others, if I had the the power to do that, over and above IQ or good looks or athletic mobility or whatever, it would be resilience or hardiness or grit, the ability to respond in a positive way and learn from sources of pain and adversity and failure, because it's a gift that keeps on giving through life. It's geometric, right? So the first question when you hit bottom is, do you keep going down? Do you go back up? Are you sort of a pessimist or an optimist? Are you sort of a victim or an agentic person where where you can actually take that and do something with it? And the second piece is, do you learn or do you try to ignore that and move on with your life? And then the third piece is, what do you learn? So these crucible events, uh, when we're coaching people or helping students 
develop as a person, as a leader, we ask them for those searing moments in their lives that they tend to return to and keep mining um, for meaning. And so that's how we think about crucibles because our life stories are generally boring, as I've already mentioned, but it's those specific sets of experiences in life that seem to be so ripe for us to keep mining for lessons. Now, we've talked about um, misconceptions or stereotypes about quote-unquote great leaders on the podcast before, and frequently great leaders are considered to be strong and confident people, but how does vulnerability work into what you define as authentic leadership? And I gotta, I have to obviously give a nod <laughs> to my hero, and we're going to go up from the heroic, the old heroic notion of leaders, right? Which is largely a male notion and a heroic notion that you've got all the answers, and as you mentioned, you're strong, you're confident, and you got it all together. Um, and I have to give a nod to my latest hero, which is of course Brene Brown, and you know her iconic you know, TED Talk 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago now, where she kind of introduced the world to this notion of vulnerability. And it's a thread now that moves through every developmental program or course or coaching that I, that, that around leader development or any sort of development. So let's, let's be clear about what we're talking about here. So in general, putting one, being vulnerable, we normally think of it, vulnerability as weakness. Um, but if you really read or listen deeply to her research, Brene Brown's research, right? It's just the opposite putting oneself out there, completely out there emotionally with no guarantees on the outcome. And guess what? You cannot lead without being vulnerable. You cannot lead without putting yourself out there. So leadership is a probabilistic endeavor. All my students say, I want to lead. I want to lead. And I said, are you sure? <laughs> because here's how you got a class. Uh, here's how you got a seat in the classroom at Harvard Business School. First third of your life, was pretty much under your control. If you worked harder and you were smarter and you you know did your homework when others didn't and you did what your teachers said or your coach did told you to do your music teacher, you could be successful. It was under largely under your control. And then I say, now if you want to lead, leading is about being evaluated on how other people do. <laughs> and are you sure you want to do that? Because you can do absolutely everything right as a leader, right? And still catch a bullet. And we know people in the business world that, that could do everything wrong and still get lucky. So leading at its heart, at its essence, is about being vulnerable, about putting oneself out there. Brene's, I think her, her best book around daring greatly is from Roosevelt's quote, putting yourself in the ring, putting oneself out there with no guarantees on the outcomes. And so this notion of being vulnerability, about more self-disclosure. And, and then the second piece is you really can't get the good stuff without risking the bad. So what do we mean by that? You can't get joy and success and belonging and love and purpose without risking pain and loss and grief, right? And failure. You just can't. Was, this, is the, this is what drove Brene Brown so crazy in her first research. Like, we'd all love to get all the good things without having to risk the bad. But that's not what leading's about. That's not what uh, living a full-hearted life, she would say, is about. And it's not, and, and you can't lead. You absolutely can't do that without being vulnerable. So this notion of vulnerability, the counterintuitive role about putting oneself out there under conditions of uncertainty with no guarantees on the outcome is the essence of leading. And so this is counterintuitive. We used to think of vulnerability as weakness. It's actually strength. It's the ultimate courageous act of living. 
Um, and we can look over and over again at every example. I, I grew up in the military. I spent the first 25 years of my professional adult life in the army. And every heroic act in the battlefield involves someone being vulnerable, putting oneself out there without a clear sense of, or certainly no guarantees of the outcomes. So this is counterintuitive. And this is true of all three major roles in society, parenting, teaching, and leading. If you think about those three roles, they all go together. And the trend back, say, in the industrial age was parenting. Teach, uh, children should be seen, not heard. Teaching. Um, I'm the teacher. I have the answers. I'm going to tell you, then you feed them back to me. Leading. I'm the boss. I know exactly what I want you to do every minute of the day. My job as a leader, as a boss in the industrial age is basically what I want from you as an employee is compliance. Just do what you're told and we'll be great. You move into the information age where the tasks have changed dramatically instead of some simple task where all you need is compliance to you need all the beautiful, crazy quirkiness of every individual that comes in your door every day and the shift from compliance to empowerment. And that involves being vulnerable. Right. And that involves and that's where diversity comes in. That's where you need all these different ideas and different life experiences. And so that's the real shift and the trend from the old heroic model where leaders are, and parents are expected to be perfect to leaders who can be vulnerable. Um, and people are, in fact, drawn to you. People who are more vulnerable and say, hey, look, I've never seen this challenge before. I need your help versus, hey, I got this. <laughs> right. Uh, which is the old model. And in addition to this attribute of vulnerability, you've also mentioned how important a sense of identity or you know, self-awareness uh, is in leadership development. Why is that so important? And how do we go about improving or growing uh, in terms of self-awareness? You know, let's put self-awareness into context. So I mentioned my goals when I I run programs are twin goals of moving the dial on self-awareness and self-acceptance. But self-awareness, if you, you put in the context of emotional intelligence or EQ, if just to remind our listeners, right, EQ is five components. Self-awareness, the first one. Self-regulation, what do you do with the self-awareness? And I like to put the middle one as empathy, which is the shift from you to others or from, we call it from me uh, uh, to we. And then the last two pieces, you think of the leading, which is motivating uh, and social skills. So self-awareness, self-regulation, empathy, right? And then motivation and social skills. So it all starts with self-knowledge, right? Self-awareness. And I believe self-acceptance as well. So first of all, can't do this work by ourselves. (laughs) We believe that uh, human beings, our species, is, is the only species on the planet that we know of that can be self-reflective and we're aware of ourselves. So actually when you wake up in the morning, you're like, you start having a conversation with yourself and like, man, what did I say at the party last night? How do I want to be today? Who are you talking with? (laughs) Right. We can. So I don't, this will drive you crazy. You start thinking about this, but we believe we're the only species who is self-reflective and can be aware of ourselves. And, and, and we can't do that in a vacuum. We might like to think we can, but we actually cannot know ourselves except as we see ourselves in the reflections of others as mirrors. So there's a sociologist over 100 years ago named Charles, Charles Cooley who coined this phrase, the looking glass self. And let me share this. It's three parts to it. I am not what I think I am. I am not what you think I am. I am what I think you think I am. 
So this is tricky business, right? To learn about ourselves, to become more self-aware. It's to try for me to make sense, Ashley, about what you think I am, right? It's not just what I am. It's not just your opinion. And there's a lot of noise in there. It's how I make sense of your feedback of how you experience me. And that's just tough work. And then let's add another level of complexity. It's not just you. You're not the only mirror in my life, right? To the extent that I can surround myself with as diverse set of mirrors, the greater the likelihood that I'm going to get a more complex, variegated, and accurate view of who I am. And yet our tendency, as we know, is to surround ourselves with people who are like us. And we get in the echo chamber and everybody sees us the same way because they're like ourselves. So one more argument for increased diversity is in your lives, do you have enough of the right kind of people in your life? Do you surround yourselves? Do you get feedback from people who are really different than you? Because if you just hang with the same group of people over and over again, ask the same people for feedback, you're getting a very lopsided, simplistic view of who you are. So that's how we go about self-awareness, um, that looking glass self. And we can't do, you literally can't do the work alone. Taking that level of diversity and having um, different perspectives and inputs into your self-awareness, how does that play a role with defining what you call a sweet spot and the importance of working in a space such as that? Yeah, this is one of my favorite frameworks. Um, so again, I'm going to try to do some, I'm a visual learner. I, I'm not sure what I think until I've seen what I said. So imagine, again, we're in a podcast, imagine three circles that are, you know, overlapping, you know, like the Olympic rings, right? So uh, the Mickey Mouse ears, the two in the top, the one in the upper left, uh, let's call it uh, strengths, right? And then the one in the upper right, if you're drawing with me, would be others value. Okay. And then the bottom circle, and they all overlap in the middle, uh, the bottom circle would be your passions. So if you, uh, we believe there's the intersection of these three is what we call a developmental sweet spot. So let me go through each of these rings again. In the upper left, strengths. The old nature versus nurture debate, I believe, is a red herring. Uh, we talk about leader development that transmorphs into our leaders born or made. Again, I think these are trivial, not very useful questions. Uh, there's research out there and how much is inherited, how much is not. But look, we know the answer to both these questions. The answer is yes. Okay. Um, and the upper left-hand corner, you know, people, you know, there's a guy, my third grade class at Akron Elementary School. His name was Jimmy Dahl. And he was a born leader. He was born in the deep end of the gene pool and already at eight or 10 years old, he was so far ahead of the rest of us, right? But that doesn't mean we can't improve. Right. So that upper left hand corner strengths, these are the genetic predispositions, right? That when the day you're born, you came out of the womb, there were some things, right? Based on these genetic predispositions, some things that you might be incredible at. And other things, no matter how hard you work at them, you're only going to get incremental growth. Right. And you, we can start imagining which one of the things, you know, come easy to us, which come hard to us. So the upper left hand corner is the, is the born part of the born made, right? It's the nature part of the nature nurture debate. So it really matters, right? So those are your gifts, your strengths. And then the upper right-hand circle of Mickey Mouse's ears is others value. These are the extrinsic rewards. These are context specific. In other words, those strengths during certain periods of time in certain contexts and in certain industries are valued more than others. And the upper right-hand corner is 
I'll hire you, Ashley, for the strengths you bring. Uh, I want to be on your team because of what you bring to the table. I'm going to promote you. I'm going to give you a big bonus, right? These are the extrinsic awards that you're going to be famous because we value in this time, this era, those strengths that you bring to the table. These are extrinsic rewards, and they vary from industry, from context to context, from culture to culture. And then the last piece on the bottom, passion, right? Intrinsic rewards, right? What are the tasks in your life that you would do without any external validation or reward? Left to your own devices as a child, and this is a difficult one. It's always surprising, and a lot of research supports this, that we're really not good at discerning what not only what makes us happy, but you know, what we just enjoy doing, what our intrinsic motivations are. When you were a child and had un, unstructured time, if you had any when you were growing up, uh, what did you just go do? What do you like to do um, with, you know, resource unconstrained? So what the sweet spot is, and if you think about it, it sets up this positive spiral. You take those strengths, things that come easy to you, um, and you would just do them naturally. Um, and then others are willing to pay you for it or acknowledge you or reward you for them. And it's at the intersection of those three we call a sweet spot. And this model only works at the task level analysis. Let me say it again, just for specific tasks, not for industries or even jobs or roles like leader, right? Or I'll take my job. So a college professor, um, I think it's the best job in the world for me right now, but this isn't Pollyannish, um, this model you know, not every, I don't know of anybody that gets to spend every minute of their job, uh, their work life in a sweet spot. But I've worked with this model over the course of my life to craft a job where I spend more time at or near developmental sweet spot and less time doing things that are the flip side of these three circles. Less time doing things that don't come easy to me, less time doing things that I don't enjoy, right? And less time doing things that maybe aren't appreciated. So, um, it, there are some tasks in my job. I love teaching. I love developmental, uh, I, I love designing developmental learning experiences. I don't love grading. Um, I don't love writing professional writing. These are all parts or subtasks in a college professor's, um, job requirements. And so I've literally, I was tenure track associate professor at Harvard business school up for tenure and actually took myself off that track was asked to be re reappointed as a senior lecturer because I realized I don't want to spend the rest of my life writing for journal editors because <laughs> I, and I appreciate those who can do that and love doing that and are wonderful at it. Um, but it's just not my thing. And as a senior lecturer, I get to focus on teaching. And that was a, one of the most significant career decisions I've made in my career. And I actually use this model to inform that decision. So it sounds like that model or framework of kind of defining the sweet spot takes all of the previous things we dis discussed, such as self-awareness, vulnerability, prior experiences to better understand, you know, where you should potentially head and what would make you the happiest. Here's the challenge, Ashley, and I, I should share this last piece. Um, remember, be no do. You can't know until you do. So to your point about life experiences. I mean, we can't know anything about ourselves until we have some life stories or life experiences to mine. You don't know what your strength, the day you were born, holding an infant in your arms, one of the most amazing experiences, right? In newborn. What's amazing, one of the most amazing things about it is you have no idea who she is or who she might become. She might become prime minister, president, CEO. She might be, you have no idea 
right? Until she starts having some life experiences, she won't be able to discern what are those things that come easy to her? What are those things that are more difficult for her? What are things that people appreciate in her or not appreciate in her? What does she enjoy doing more than other things, right? So you can't know until you do. And I use a really simple example of this, um, which around leadership, like if you've never led, say you're a physician or you're, you're someone with great technical expertise and you're thinking about stepping up into a leadership position and you've never done it before. Um, you really don't know if that might be a strength of yours. You might not know if you're going to enjoy it or not either, or with other people appreciate you as a leader until you actually do it and you get some reps. It takes some time. Absent savants, for those of you who play a musical instrument growing up, absent savants, most people, when they start learning to play the piano or the guitar, learning how to play chords or keyboards or something, you don't really enjoy it that much, you know, the first couple of days or weeks. Um, you're not sure if you're really good at it until a couple of weeks or months. And then you realize, oh, man, look at this peer in my in my piano lesson group. This person's so far ahead of me. And, it, you know, and I don't really enjoy this. Right. It takes you don't know until you can do. Same thing's true with leader development. Right. Until you get some reps. And I can't tell you how many reps. I can't tell you if it's weeks or months or even years to figure out if it's your calling, if you're passionate about it or if it might be one of your strengths that you bring to the world. So you can't really know until you do. And here's the simplest example I can, from my life. I was sort of recruited to play tennis when I went to West Point, our military academy. Uh, and I didn't do my homework at the time. I'm, I'm dating myself. We didn't have any indoor tennis courts. And so West Point's on upstate New York along the Hudson River. And I never imagined, well, what does the Army tennis team do in the winter? <laughs> we can't play tennis outside. And I learned one day when I got a note from my tennis coach, his name was this legendary coach, Paul Asiante. And it said somewhere, it was November, it said, report to the 12th floor gym after class today. I was like, man, I know there was a 12th floor in the gym. <laughs> so I was finding my way up this old staircase and I get up there, there's this long, narrow hallway. And there's Paul, my coach, standing down there, as I remember it, outside a little hole in the wall. And he's waving to me to come down there. And he pushes me through this hole in the wall, big, heavy door slams. And in this little white room, a piece of metal along the floor in the front. And he hands me a reinforced badminton racket and a ball that doesn't bounce. Okay, now some of you may know where this is going. It's, it's squash. Look, I grew up on a farm in Pennsylvania, a farm town. Squash is a pumpkin, right? It's, it's a gourd, right? I had never heard of this sport. And I'm, I'm looking at this little white room. And little did I know, the Army tennis team magically transmorphs into the Army squash team in the winter season. And I'm screaming at my tennis squash coach. I'm like, Paul, you can't lock me in this little room all winter. And he's on the other side of the door, and I'm pushing against it. I couldn't get out. And the point, if you've ever played squash or if you ever try to pick up any sport or an instrument, I hated it. So think about the model, right? Your strengths, other people appreciate, and your passions. So for the, I mean, I hit in the ball. The ball doesn't bounce to up. You know, it hits the tin and goes out the back. And it's just, I, I just hated it. But if you ever played the sport, after you hit the ball while it warms up and it starts bouncing a little better, after a couple of days, a couple of weeks, you get a little better, just like any task. And let me skip to the end, right? Um, after about a month or two, so I don't know how many reps that is, I was forced to play squash for, for a month or so. I realized, you know what? Unlike tennis, right, where my opponent's on the other side of the net, uh, my opponent's stuck in the same confined small space with me, and I got a weapon in my hand. And unlike tennis, I can, with a squash racket, I can hit the ball as hard as I want. And I started enjoying squash. And make a long story short, you know, 
10 to 18 months. I quit army tennis, focused on squash, um, and became a much more competitive squash player um, than a tennis player I was ever going to be. But my point on this is not about my squash prowess, but there it is. Squash versus tennis, something I was fairly good at, tennis. Uh, but someone forced me to get some reps in a new skill, squash. And I didn't know that, in fact, I was relatively much more gifted at ten- uh, squash than tennis. I enjoyed squash for the rest of my life. It's my I'm the most passionate sport about ever. And I became, other people appreciate it, I became uh, much more gifted and more talented and successful squash player than I was ever going to become as tennis. So the same thing's true about leadership in anything in life. You really don't know if you're going to pick up a task or a hobby or move from say, being a physician to a leader of a hospital or clinic, you really don't know until you do it for a while. So that's kind of the, and that's true of everything in life until you get a whole bunch of experience out there to mine for lessons. Um, you can't know until you do. And kind of going along with that, um, obviously it takes a lot of practice and experience to understand what role leadership development will play in each individual's life. But if we wanted to build up some of the knowledge foundation about these topics, what resources do you recommend for our listeners who want to learn or do more? So I often get asked, you know, what's what's a great leadership book? And, and there are a lot of good books out there in leadership. Um, but I don't have, I have a hard time answering that. My answer is always read biographies, read autobiographies. I already mentioned um, President Obama's first biography, now second autobiography as well. Um, but think of someone, a great leader like Abraham, President Lincoln. He was not fully, he was not born fully formed as the president we remember. I mean, he was self-taught and all the experiences, all the crucibles in his life helped make him who he is. And so my first recommendation is read life stories. Um, start reflecting and writing your own. Second is, I already mentioned Brene Brown. Um, if you're not uh, aware of her work, I mean, just watch her TED Talk, then watch her 10 years later, a Netflix special. Um, and then programs like YPO, Young Presidents Organization, I just picked that one, where they invest in you, it's small group work um, outside the normal chain of command in your organization, wherever you're working. Being part of groups, small developmental groups, and Young Presidents Organization is just one, where um, you have this structure where you get together, uh, it creates a psychologically safe place, and where you can learn from each other, from peers. So any experiences like that, and programs, obviously, like we teach, you know, to go off to programs, week-long programs, or year-long programs, where you're doing a week here, and uh, a week out of each month, or something like that. So again, I'll just go back to where I started this, um, right? Uh, developmental readiness, experiences, and reflection. Life experiences, life's curriculum is so full of potentially developmental lessons, right? If we just pay attention to them every minute of every day in our relationships with our families, our friends, our community life, our professional life, there's plenty of experience there to mine and learn if we can get in a learning mode. Um, so that's sorry. That's my that's my answer to what resources and what you might want to do uh, to help accelerate your own development as leaders. Professor Snook, this has been a very insightful conversation. Thank you so much for being on our show. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Do you have any last words of advice for our listeners? I do, and it's my latest provocation. I'm sort of working. I have a working title for it, and it's going to sound a little 
counterintuitive given what I've already shared with you. The working title is Not Everyone Should Lead, and That's Okay. And look, I'm in the business of leader development. Um, and yet I feel I have a sneaking suspicion. Look, we've been at this now for almost 50 years as a pseudo profession where we're really studying leadership, studying leader development. It's a multi billion dollar industry. And boy, you know what? If we do a little assessment, how well have we done? Have we moved the dial on the quality of leadership in every domain? You don't have to look at it. You can look at religion. You can look at politics. You can look at my own world of academics. You can look at business, medicine. Have we gotten, if you look around everywhere, do we have better quality leaders in those positions? It's a little bit of a, you know, uh, soul searching, a little bit, takes a little bit of soul searching, but I'm not sure we, you know, we can, we moved the dial as much as we should have. And I believe one of the reasons we still find so much low quality leadership in every domain more than we should is that people are leading for the wrong reasons. People are leading for the wrong reasons, right? And when I talk about leading now, I mean formal leadership positions where you have the responsibility for the outcomes, of the, the, the mobilizing others' efforts towards some outcome and, and being responsible for other people's growth and development and taking care of them, right? Why do we believe anyone can lead? And this is a fault of my profession around leader development. If you look at our literature, everybody should lead. Everybody can lead. Lead from the front. Lead from the middle. Lead from the back. Everybody, everybody's a leader. And I just think what happens is, and it's an artifact of our the way we've designed organizations, most organizations and incentive structures, the only way you can get promoted or greater status and greater money in most organizations and professions, not all of them, um, is to move into a leadership position. So most of us start out as sort of individual contributors, say a researcher and, or a physician, and then you might end up leading a hospital or a clinical team or something, or I might end up being a dean at a, at a school. Um, but most organizations, the only way you get promoted is to become a manager and a leader. There's some notion, I think we don't do a good enough job at sending the signal out. Um, not everybody, this isn't for everybody. And I tell my MBA students at Harvard, I mean, the mission of the Harvard Business School is to educate leaders who make a difference in the world. So when they write their admissions essay, they say, I want to be a leader who makes a difference in the world. And most of them have never led. And so then they go out there and they, they think they have to lead. And what if, you know what, someone's a great at writing code. Someone's an incredible world-class surgeon. What's the overlap between the skills required to be an incredible world-class surgeon or someone who can write computer code with someone who leads people who write computer code or somebody who actually runs a hospital or a surgical clinic? You know, same thing. Great basketball players, all great basketball players don't make great coaches, right? So we just somehow believe that everybody should do this. And I think one of the biggest reasons we haven't gotten the move the dial enough on quality leadership in every domain is that we have people in so many domains leading for all the wrong reasons. So I'll leave you with that little provocation. Thank you for going through this topic, this very important topic, Professor Snook. Well, folks, that about wraps up our episode of ENT in a Nutshell. Thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time. <laughs>